Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for episode three of Finding the Front. We are hugely excited to be able to have a chat over a two-part episode with Paul House, who is the CEO of leading global mining tech company, Index, stock code IMD. Index is a hugely interesting and progressive business. It enables drilling contractors and resource companies to find, mine and define ore bodies with precision and at speed. It has a seriously global footprint, having supported clients in more than 100 countries in the last financial year. And currently, it carries a market capitalization of in excess of $1 billion. I first met Paul in 1990 and was really stoked he was happy to have a chat on Finding the Front. Paul is a ripping bloke who originates from a very established farming family in the well-known country town of Noangarup, located in the great southern region of Western Australia. He has since gone on to accumulate some 30 years of experience in leading roles within the resources and technology sectors across many parts of the world, including the USA, Africa, India, the Middle East and Southeast Asia. It's going to be an unreal story. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Mr. Paul House. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Really good to have a chat. Unreal. Unreal. So, look, I do know that you grew up in Noangarup, beautiful yeah, that's part right. of Australia. Yeah, look, I, um, Noangarup is just over 300 people, I think, now, and probably just over 300 people when I was living there or when I grew up there. Wonderful, wonderful town, about four hours out of Perth. Pretty small, dominant farming community, and it was small enough that a lot of the classrooms at the time were mixed grade, you know, and so you tended to travel for hours to go to sporting events and you tend to meet all sorts. It's a pretty, pretty integrated community. I loved it. You would have dominated the football field for the no anger up under under eights? No, mate, I'm I'm slow now. I was still slow then, Banner, so <laughs> not much has changed in that sense. And and so your your parents were farmers? Yeah, we, that's right. We um, Our farm is an original uh, settler's farm, I guess. It was, you know, my great-grandparents sailed out from England, landed in Albany, walked up, pegged land, cleared that land, uh, in the 1880s, and that property has been, it was still with us today. It's a, it's a really historical property, and there are so many great historical stories, not just around Noangra, but around WA, and it's something, it's actually interesting, it's something I'm getting much more passionate about as I get older. Yes. Uh, but it's a, it is, it's, there's a lot of history. So they came down and cleared the land, your grandparents? Yeah, my great-grandparents did. Great-grandparents. Yeah. So when they landed at Albany and they got off the ship, at that stage you had to walk from the port, and they walked up to Katanning at the time. My great-grandfather had a brother who was the government-appointed GP locum in that area. So he borrowed money from him to go and clear the land that had been allocated or pegged for him or allocated by the government. So he cleared the land and then one brother drew a line through the middle and the other brother picked which half of the land they would take. No way. Uh, And those boundaries are still there today. It's quite odd to see. I'll cut you choose. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, not much has changed in 150 years. (laughs) It's not a bad way of divvying up food for the kids. Your father, then, as part of being, you know, clearly a big identity in, in and around Katanning, went into politics. The great Monty House. 
Yeah, that's right. He um, look, he was always he's very very civic minded, and probably a very big forming part of living in Noengrup and living in that household. Everybody had a very strong net giver kind of mindset in the community. For a very small town, you know, things like our golf club, our tennis club, our councils were very well attended, very broad community. So it didn't matter whether you were a landowner or you ran the post office or you worked in the newspaper agent or for the main roads department or drove a truck, you mixed with everyone at the golf course, at the tennis club. It's an interesting community that you don't get living in a city. And so you learned very early on uh, what busy bees are, how people get together and help each other. It's something that I think a large amount of our communities that most people live in today in big urban environments miss and lack because you tend to stratify yourself by postcode and the like. Uh, and it's something I actually genuinely miss. Yeah, yeah. You went to boarding school, year eight. Yeah, that's right. I went to, came to Perth and went to Hale School. At that stage, no one didn't. It had a high school, but it stopped at year 10. Yep. So if you wanted to go further, you either came to Perth or went to Albany, or there was a, there was a boarding school at Catanning for a little while. So a lot of us, well, there wasn't many of us, but a few of us drifted up to Perth at that stage. Back then, you didn't go home very often. So you spent, no. you lived in dormitories that uh, were sort of 20 to 24 beds at a time. It was very, uh, it wasn't Tom Brown's school days, Banners, but it was pretty, uh, it was pretty interesting lifestyle. You didn't know any better. I absolutely loved it. For me, that was a real thriving moment for me. You know, you, you lift yourself out of a small town and suddenly this whole world opens up and you connect to a lot of people who come from all over the state of Western Australia and beyond. And look, as we know, that's about five times the size of Texas. So it's a very big, you end up with very big and broad networks. It's a really, really fun environment. Sure is. So you would have been about the age of 12 when you left? Yeah, that's right. Just, just over 12. So, and at that stage, you'd come up to school and you'd go back and drive the tractor, the truck or the harvester during seeding or harvesting doing the sheep work, of course, so it tended to be a very hands-on deck. Child labour was okay back in those days, Banners. I think, they, <laughs> I think there's rules against it now, but certainly that was how most people from the country probably still live today, actually. Yeah, yeah. So just coming back to, to Dad, you know, his role in politics shaped you, and, I mean, he was a very well-known figure. I, I remember him being you know, very well-known within the political landscape. Yeah, he was. He's, he's a pretty remarkable man. He really is one of those net giver people. If you have the capacity, then you have the responsibility you know, to give to the community in which you live. His father was also a member of parliament, so it's probably not a surprise that my father also went that way. He, he's a very big voice. We're not that dissimilar in personality, which you know, <laughs> opposite poles uh, or like poles repel a little bit. So going to boarding school was probably also, as much as we were a great family unit, I think finding my own space and direction at that time and going to boarding school was probably pretty key but yeah look he was a, he's a quite a remarkable man never really turns off you know that expression you can't teach an old dog new tricks yes yeah that doesn't apply to him he's one of the he's quite interesting he's always willing to take on interesting information he's very open-minded that has been another factor I think in my life as you move through different career phases and live in different countries that probably has shaped me pretty heavily do they still live on the farm well, look, they travel around a little bit. They're in yeah. their mid-70s now, my yeah. parents, uh, and they're very much a team sport. I mean, we talked about Monty, but he'll be the first to tell you that, you know, all careers are really team sports. Of course. And my mother played a very strong role in, in running the farm and supporting him in his political career, and no different than actually when I moved to become an expat. You know, those are team sports and team decisions, and, you know, they provide you a lot of comfort, actually. And a lot of understanding on way successful partnerships operate. Yeah, I think so. Pillow talk probably isn't what you imagine, Dennis, in that <laughs> sense. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, very, very comforting and very uh, a great source of solace information. Good, great sounding board. 
very safe, very trusted. So Hale went on to go to UWA, got the degrees out of the way. Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do, to be I really was going honest. to ask that. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so often it happens. That, yeah. you, know, you, you can get to the tender age of, uh, or heading into 50, and you still don't know what you want to do. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'd like to think I've got a little more leg on it now than I did back then. But, but you're right. Look, I think you're pretty young when you come out of boarding school at that age. And I went and did a commerce degree at UWA. I actually wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, I was told I wanted to be a lawyer. It's probably a better way to put it. I could always go back to the farm, but you know, I had an opportunity to go to university when that opportunity was not afforded to my father before me. And so they really made sure that they created space you know, for us as kids to go and do that. Still didn't really know what I wanted to do. When I did do my commerce degree, I was very fortunate to be picked up by Arthur Anderson. He existed back then and doesn't now. And that opened up a whole heap of other doors. But the degree, I would have to say, was a pretty difficult year. I had a lot of fun, but I really still did not know what it was I wanted to be. I wasn't quite sure what a non-farming life looked like at that time. Yes. Um, well, I mean, that's where our paths crossed when we uh, ended up at the University Football Club. That's uh, right, mate. Well, when you say path, you mean you were in the upper grade to me and I was still that slow <laughs> footballer running down a couple mate, of grades below. You had an impact. <laughs> you had an impact. I, d- I was looking through your, your career highlights in terms of your time at Arthur Anderson. Yeah, you spent eight years there. So very formative in terms of what you learned. But interestingly, across the areas of Australia, USA, Jordan, Zambia, Mongolia and Saudi Arabia, Tell us a little bit about that. What were you doing in all these places? Yeah, well, look, that, is, that was fascinating and obviously unplanned to a great degree. In the early 90s, Western Australia, I think you just had the bond court collapse. Australia was going into a bit of a recession, certainly Western Australia. So the, the commerce intake into Anderson's the year before, I think it'd been about 42 or three people. And before we had even started our first day of work, over 50% of those guys, I think, were made redundant as work dried up around the state. And so we were leaving university and going to work for Andersons at a time when there was a huge amount of uncertainty. When we did that, by being in a very small office and being in a time of uncertainty, a couple of things happen. You end up being fairly entrepreneurial. You have to go make your own work. Uh, And the way we responded to that in the Arthur Anderson Business Consulting Group was to take our knowledge in the mining and resources sector and find other markets to apply it. Now, the World Bank was, and the Asian Development Bank were markets that looked to invest in emerging economies and try and lift up the skill base and lift up the quality of operations. Some pretty interesting jurisdictions around the world. So we started applying for consulting contracts to go and help turn around state-owned mining enterprises in various countries supported by World Bank funding. Uh, and that started off on a really a pretty amazing journey of discovery, really. It was like getting an MBA every six months, depending on your What a learning traveling. experience. Yeah. Well, it also, it also coincided, I mean, I think growing up, in, growing up in a small country town and then living in a boarding school, the reality, Banners, is that I thought Perth was a, a pretty crowded, polluted, you know, cesspool, very difficult city, a metropolis to live in. Of course, I know a little better now. <laughs> it's really quite beautiful. But at that time, you know, the, the desire to get out of Perth uh, and the desire to go and explore the world um, and the economic situation in WA driving that all came together really at a a perfect coincidence for me. I mean, you, you've ended up ticking that box in terms of seeing the world. Did you travel to all of these places during that period of time? Yeah, I did. I, um, and we did, it wasn't so much travelling there, it was living there. And there's a big difference, I think, between so, visiting a place but yeah. immersing yourself in there, spending 
six months, 12 months, you've got to pay bills, you've got to employ people, you've got to navigate. And we had a pretty small group of like-minded individuals at a pretty amazing mentor in guys like Ian Gerard and Michael McDalty, who are still at Deloitte today. Uh, and then there was a team of us, so Tim Levy, who runs Family Zone, Mike Lynn, who's still at uh, Deloitte as a partner, uh, and a number of other guys. We all, we all probably were looking to spread our wings a little bit. We were all prepared to go somewhere to live as opposed to somewhere to work. And that mindset by itself, that, that is where you really commit to being somewhere and you really start to commit to understanding the place it is where you're working. And that knowledge of a place then becomes very instrumental then to how you become effective as a leader in the, in the job you're doing in that space. And I'd say, you know, the opportunity to do that, supported by the, the leadership and mentoring that we got inside of Arthur Anderson at that time, and having a, lo- a like-minded group of friends that wanted to go and similarly explore was really, really pivotal. And would it be fair to say it was a, a, a pivotal part of you forming views on not only different businesses, but you know the way to do business and the way to communicate externally and internationally? Yeah, well, unquestionably. Yeah. I think um, you know, there's, a, there's a few things that come out of... You know, Australia has its very own strong culture, and we have a very strong culture of mateship. When you travel to places like Africa, Southeast Asia, India, you know, the concept of mateship there is very different. It's infinitely more complex and nuanced and what relationships mean and how they work and translate from a personal context into a business context is so far removed from the way we think about mateship in the same sense in Australia. Uh, And it's delightful. It's actually very, very rewarding. And if you make that time and effort to invest in those cultures and connect to people, uh, and understand their communities, you can, you can actually have a lot of fun and be very effective at what you do. Make a difference. And it makes you look at, it actually makes it look, whatever opportunity is put in front of you, it becomes um, much easier to unpick, if you like. And so I can sit in a room and understand the motivations of the two people having a conversation and hear the difference between what's said and what's heard, what's said and what's meant. And in a way that if you haven't spread your wings and spent times deeply immersed in a lot of those cultures, it can be a lot more difficult. You must find and draw upon this. I'm just interested to see with your time at Arthur Anderson, is that where you really developed a more of a global sense of the world, in not only in terms of economic terms, but communication and, and the, the effectiveness of it and living in places, to now run Imdex, which is such a global organisation with a footprint all around the world. And we will get to that part, but I mean, you must have drawn a lot from your time at Arthur Anderson. I really, I really did. In fact, it really um, it took the blinkers off a little bit in terms of what was possible in the world. It was, a, it was at that time I decided I was never going to go back to the farm, actually, Banners, which led to some probably... Hard a, conversations. A, well, it did. As, and as supportive as my parents were to go to university and to look at non-farming type careers, when you actually get to the line where you've got to make a call, not going to go back to the farm, it, it was more confronting than probably we'd imagined as a family. Yeah, some uh, dinner conversations, I'm sure, went right into the night. Yeah, well, you know, strong, stoic family types. They're not so much the conversations as what's not said sometimes. All right. <laughs> I could just imagine. So moving on, you did spend, oh, I just wanted to dwell on a little bit on your time in Africa, which was, you, so you left after Arthur Anderson and now you're Chief Operating Officer at B Digital. Just explain that to us a little bit. Yeah, so as I, you know, the, my time at Anderson's, you know, was, was fascinating in that one minute you're restructuring copper mines in the Congo jungle. 
the next minute the Soviet Union is broken up and you're restructuring the energy sector in outer Mongolia. You're working with different organisations in Papua New Guinea, in Indonesia, in, in the Middle East. It is such a fascinating and diverse experience. And at some point you realise that you're providing a lot of people advice and you really feel probably falsely confident actually, Patters. And you, you wanted an opportunity to go and say, well, if I, if I ask you to take this advice and you make a lot of money and you don't take it, well, why did you pay me in the first place? Uh, or if they do take your advice and they make a lot of money, you go, well, geez, that's great for you. Now where do we go? Yeah. <laughs> and I think at that time, you know, you're looking for what happened to me is that shift from consulting to actually being able to have your hands on the levers. Of um, a particular business. That's right. And, you know, the, wanting the accountability, I guess, is the way you'd think about it. The opportunity came through, through a, a friend, Kerry Stokes, was funding the startup of a, a new business model for telecommunications and mobile phones in the late 90s. And that was, uh, they were looking for somebody to go and replicate the model that had been initiated in Australia and replicate that overseas in Africa. And it was a wonderful chance to, to test everything that you really thought you knew. What you knew, did it stack up? Yeah, there's a big difference between preaching about things like cash flow and having to live it, that's for sure. So, <laughs> but look, it was, remar- it was really the, the idea that you can build a culture as opposed to amend a culture. It was an extraordinarily thrilling time. And, so, and you also end up with, I guess, that next mentor in your life. So whether it was initially you know, through the family unit and then through the guys, uh, the partnership at Anderson Consulting, uh, and then you're now moving into a world where in a startup you need people, there's a lot of trust that's involved. And we had a lot of support. There was uh, one of Kerry Stokes's right-hand men is a guy called Sean Gentry. Sean was a remarkable support to us in trusting us, guiding us, catching us when we were heading down the wrong path. Yes. And moving to Africa to live? Yeah, very, I was very keen to do it. I'd just met my then-girlfriend and now-wife, Hannah. Um, and so we actually became the first two employees as part of that organization in that telecommunications business in South Africa. And so together, we lived, worked together to build that business from the ground up. So from two employees up to about 135 or so uh, in a, about a two-year span. You did it together? We did, which means she knows, once again, she knows exactly how I work. She knows exactly how flawed I am. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we could just take a little bit of a step back there. You met Hannah in Perth? Yeah, at the time I was living in uh, Mongolia and she was living in Oxford in the UK. She'd spent some time in Japan. So probably had a, was a kindred spirit in the way she wanted to explore the world, I think. We both happened to be home for Christmas and ha- happened to meet up at a Christmas party. Actually, it was in my house. We had a heap of people over and she seemed pretty cool to me. And one thing led to another. I then went to uh, live in, in fact, I ended up travelling. I sent for Valentine's Day, I sent her a two tickets to Tuscany in Italy, which for some crazy reason she accepted. We spent two weeks, our first date was really two weeks driving around Tuscany, at the end of which I'd fallen completely in love with this girl and I think I was really starting to annoy her a fair bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, um, I, was, I was getting nervous as we left London and she was going to go back to Oxford and I was had to fly back to Perth and she was, I was talking away nervously knowing that I was about to get on a plane she turned to me and said, you just need to shut up. You're ruining everything. <laughs> Gosh, we might have to delete that part about you yeah. offering her a two-week trip around Tuscany. Setting a bad example. You're setting a very high bar. 
Yeah, but then I, I moved to I moved to Jordan and then um, rang her and told her that I I'd, uh, I wasn't in Perth. I was now in Jordan, and she said, "How long are you going to be there?" And I said, "Well, probably about a year." She said, "I'll see you in four weeks." Quit a job, sold a stuff, and moved out to the Middle East with me. Oh, what a great story! Yeah, and then the two of you end up in uh, South Africa to basically build uh, B Digital. Yeah, that's right. It was an extraordinarily fun time. Very complex, very disruptive in terms of what the industry was at that time, uh, and the opportunity to try new things. At about that time. OneTel was was really disrupting the market in Australia. Yes. And with its ultimate demise, uh, so too the industry got pretty substantially restructured. And so funding for our growth eventually, or pretty quickly, dried up. And so we had to be very quick in how we re-engaged our, our marketplace, changed our business model. Uh, and at the end of the day, it worked out for the better. We ended up going cash positive in less than six months as a startup business, which was which was pretty remarkable. What an experience. You then decided to part ways with B Digital. We did, yeah. We sold the business to the network in Africa, a network called MTN, and then we came... So it was acquired. It was, that's right. Uh, we had the opportunity to stay there, but by that stage it had been just under three years. We had a wonderful time. It was great. But we were probably ready to try the next thing, and so we came home, and that's when we, I met up with the guy that ran SGS. Well, that's where you literally then spent the next 14 years of your life with SGS. And I think there's a lot to be talked about in this period. I mean, it's a substantial period of time and, and very formative with regards to where you're at now. Explain SGS. What were you actually doing there? Yeah, SGS is a wonderful business. It's a, um, it's a Switzerland headquartered business. It, it's an inspection and testing business. The, the way to think about it, and if I go back to, I said to you, you know, the some of my formative messages growing up were to be a net giver, you know, create a better community. SGS provides a role in society between buyers and sellers that ensure that it's done in a trusted manner, that what you think you buy is what you actually buy in terms of quality and quantity and the like. So they are an inspection and testing company that really is the the safe highway for all trade around the world. And it's the reason you, you can source products in one country and make them available in another country. And there isn't a single part of your household life that is unimpacted by that process. So whether it's the safety and quality of the food you eat, clothes you wear, the car you drive, the road you drive on, every single aspect of it has quality parameters that if they're not met, then trade is severely inhibited. And so if you want to feel good about what you're doing and you're circumventing corrupt practices, you're circumventing poor quality, you're circumventing child slavery and, and um, unpaid labour and the like. It's a really, really, it's very rewarding. You sleep very well at night thinking about what role you play in the communities that you live in. Well, you've clearly found it very fulfilling because you were there for a long time and you were managing director for nine years. All based in New Delhi. I was Sri Lanka was also included in there. Yeah, so I started out in Perth. So I met a guy, the CEO of SGS at the time was a guy called Sergio Marchioni. Uh, Sergio Marchioni is a, is a hugely impressionable leader. He was brought in to restructure SGS at that time, which was in a bit of decline. Sergio, I think, took out about 500 people through middle management in the business around the world and brought in about eight people. And I was lucky enough to be one of the eight people that came in and had a front row seat to what was really a, quite an in, 
uh, any impressive, any impressionable transformation exercise to, to make SGS what it is, continues to be today. And so that role for me started out in the, I was their finance director for their Asia Pacific region based out of Perth, and so travelled a lot. Uh, and then after four years or so, moved to India as the managing director for the South Asian, Southeast Asian region. So you didn't have to live in Sri Lanka as well? That's just part of your coverage? It was, yeah, I used to travel there a lot. Right. Beautiful part of the world. Oh, stunning. Really stunning. I think also you've got to have a, um, a mindset to want to go and explore those cultures, which, you know, obviously I and my wife both do. But yes. um, yeah, really, really enjoyable part of seeing South Asia. And so were the employees of SGS predominantly, under your watch, locals? Yeah, so I said 5,500 staff. I was the only expat over there at that time. Oh, so yeah, Very much so. And so, yeah, you do end up, uh, but again, the very complex cultures within India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, you know, they're all, if you, if you were travelling to Calcutta to give a message about safety, you would have to tell it in a certain way. You could be much more authoritarian. There's a stronger communist history in the, west, uh, in the, in the east of India, around West Bengal. Uh, if you're travelling to the south, you can't tell them anything. You have to ask them what their opinion is. And they then come up with a solution and then you support them 100%. If you go to the west of India, you've got to spend a lot more time letting people have their say, making it a much more of a collaborative conclusion, if you like. In the north of India, it's a really hard-edged, much more tougher negotiation. And I'm oversimplifying it dramatically, but the message being that in every part of the, in every region within India, they all have their own unique cultures. And so yes. navigating that and being effective from one end of the country to the other was not a one-size-fits-all. You really had to understand your audience, I guess. And position anything you were trying to achieve accordingly. Absolutely. With regards to that, how many staff were direct reports to you of the 5,000? You know, Sergio uh, and SGS in general, we ran a pretty flat structure. So I had 16 direct reports at that stage. It was a bit, bit unusual in, I guess, contemporary organisational design. And when I started, it was a very male-dominated country, male-dominated industry. Right. And then by the time I left, we, I think we're just over a quarter of our leadership group were female. And we'd substantially improved the percentage of the workforce overall that was female and creating opportunities for people to find work in SGS. Tell us a little bit about Sergio Marchioni. Is that the best way to pronounce it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Sergio Marchioni, he, he's a remarkable, a remarkable guy. Uh, so I originally met the guy running Asia Pacific, which was a guy called Chris Kirk, who's a phenomenally engaging guy. And Sergio was the CEO, and so Chris, as part of the recruitment process, asked me to go and meet with Sergio. Sergio had come from Aliaswiss Lonza that he'd turned around. He'd been brought into SGS to help turn it around. SGS was $300 a share at the time, headquartered out of Geneva, Switzerland. Today it trades at about $2,800 or $2,900 a share. Wow. And so that journey of how do you reset strategy, how do you align leadership groups, how do you put the right people in the right chairs, how do you make critical decisions, he was instrumental in lining up a large number of people, getting them all to face front and make the right decisions at the right time. It's such a fearsomely intelligent man who valued people and valued strategic thinking above all else. He went from SGS to, to turn around Fiat in Italy, which he did successfully. 
when Chrysler was going through near bankruptcy in the US, he went to Barack Obama and said, I'll turn that around for you if you give me 49% of the company or, or something to that effect, uh, which he did and integrated Fiat and Chrysler together. And they're now both, it's a very successful consolidated enterprise. He's really, truly a remarkable man. And so he stayed on as chairman, even after he left as CEO, he stayed on as chairman of SGS throughout the rest of my time there. What a fortunate thing. Yeah, genuinely blessed. And I I used the expression earlier, it's like getting an MBA every six months in some of these experiences. And it is no less true with him. Uh, And the people that he built around us at SGS at that time, and I mentioned Chris Kirk and guys like Tony Hall and a number of others around the world, a truly global, a truly leadership-driven, truly multicultural business group. It was, that was really intoxicating to, to learn from. You must draw a lot from those experiences, particularly the meetings you would have had with Sergio over the years discussing challenging moments. Yeah, he had a remarkable ability to get past all of the veneer and get to the one or two key points. His ability to absorb information and run it to ground and run it down to the one or two critical questions you needed to ask was as good as anyone I've ever worked with. There's a lot of stories about guys like that who don't who insist that presentations are no longer than three pages or six slides. He was one of those guys. And you tended to move through things at a very rapid pace with him. Less is more. Less is more. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great story. I mean, it's quite interesting what you can draw from those uh, experiences with real, true leaders. The fact that he had Barack Obama's ear was, is quite remarkable too. Yeah, he, uh, he was an interesting guy. He had, um, well, Fiat had a, when he was threatening to close down manufacturing plants of Fiat in Italy, which was considered uh, sacrilegious, you know, he was receiving death threats all the time. He would leave his underground car park in Turin. There'd be three black, blacked out vehicles would come out and all head off in different directions. You didn't know which one he was in. So he lived a life that I think you and I would not want to live. Uh, but he was a very driven guy in that sense. He really lived and breathed business full stop and working with people as his, I guess that was the sacrament that he took out of, uh, out of running businesses. When he was chairman of SGS and running Fiat Chrysler, he always had multiple Blackberries in his hand. They were his favourite tool of choice. He had a private jet. He slept a couple of hours a night. It was all the things they tell you you shouldn't do if you yeah. want to be a great leader <laughs> nowadays. It'd be impossible to replicate, and I'm not sure you'd want to be him, but the principles by which he set up people and set up businesses to run, you know, do play through, and they're, they're great lessons to, to live under. So knowing that you're an avid athlete <laughs> and you, and you, you do enjoy your, your social side of, uh, of, of sport and what it brings. Work hard, play hard banners. Correct, yeah. correct. I, I took how that did, from you. How did you go uh, in New Delhi? What did you play? Well, that was pretty challenging. So um, Cricket? Uh, no, mind you, no, I didn't play a lot of cricket. Uh, I did play a little bit. There was an expat team called the Viceroys up there, which was a group of expat that used to find a reason to travel around the rest of South Asia, playing other expat cricket teams or local cricket teams both. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but I was only mildly involved in that. I used to do a lot of running. It sounds a bit odd because, it, you know, not a lot of smooth paved roads to run on. And even at five o'clock in the morning, if you went for a run in summer, it was still 40, 42 degrees. Oh. Did you uh, find yourself losing a few kilos when you were going on these runs? Pretty fit, Banners. I bet you yeah. were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I looked better than I was <laughs> than I was in terms of fitness. And and when and living in New Delhi at, at this point, 
Have you? I know you've got a, a beautiful son and beautiful daughter. Were they born in India? Yeah, they were. They were born in Perth, while we were based here, back here briefly. But they spent the first ten years of their life in uh, India and Malaysia. Grew up in a combination of expat schools, so Indian, German, American, and British schools. Very got, a, I guess, a very broad view of the world very early on. That's fascinating, and so. That time you had with SGS, if you combine it with the time you had with Arthur Anderson, you had a very thorough background into business models, business challenges, taking businesses. Uh, I suppose if we include B Digital in there as well, you've grown a business from zero to being acquired. Probably is not a bad segue into now moving into where you've arrived back in Perth and, and the opportunity to join Index came up. And so, so let's just talk about that. First of all, what brought you back to Perth from India and the transition from that role and then, and then going forward? Yeah, look, I'd have, I'd have happily stayed with SGS forever. It's a wonderful business. And as I made clear, you know, the, the feel good about what you do and the people that you work with are really remarkable. We travelled, we spent time in India, Malaysia, and then the next posting for us was going to be Johannesburg in South Africa. And we loved South Africa. We'd lived in Cape Town for three years, but it was our business, not someone else's. We were working together, not apart. We didn't have kids then, and we did now. And so for a whole host of those reasons, we decided together that it was probably not appropriate to, for our kids to complete their high school in, in South Africa or in Johannesburg. And so we made the decision to come home, which was pretty tough. And, you know, to be, you know, Hannah was remarkable. I mean, at the end of the day, she travelled and found space in places like Jordan, South Africa, previously, India, Malaysia. So we just knew that it was time for us to come home and uh, for the kids to go to school here. We didn't have a plan when we came back. We just came back to see what we might do. Uh, and I was very, very fortunate to to run into Imdex, and I did know who Imdex was. I'd run into them into the past, but not in any great detail. But the idea that you can find a diversified industrial services group with a global footprint that is so innovative and has people that are really solving interesting problems, all headquartered out of Perth, uh, it, was a bit, it felt like a bit of a unicorn thing, Banners. It was wonderful. Well, that's the end of part A, and we're just getting warmed up. Part B of Paul House and his story is online and he's ready to go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.